Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Holly Goodman, shareholder with Gunster in Southern Florida. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are connecting with one of our members in Massachusetts. Joining us on the program is Jackie Kugel, partner at Morgan Brown & Joy and chair of the firm's management committee. Jackie and I have the pleasure of co-chairing the EEOC subcommittee for the ELA's DC Perspectives Group. Today, we will have a timely discussion on women's equality in the workplace in recognition of Women's Equality Day. For those unfamiliar, Women's Equality Day is celebrated each year on August 26th to commemorate the day the 19th Amendment was certified, giving women the right to vote. The 19th Amendment was more than 70 years in the making, with the first Women's Rights Convention occurring in 1848. In honor of Women's Equality Day, Jackie and I will explore the legal landscape as it stands today. Jackie, welcome to the program. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm great, Holly. I'm thrilled to be here. Thrilled to have this great conversation with you. I hope everything is good with you as well. It is. It is. It's a beautiful day in Florida, as are most days. And so I'm also looking forward to having this discussion with you today and catching up on what's been going on in the world of women's equality. I'd like to start our discussion with a little bit of the elephant in the room, and that is with your insights on the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization on gender equity in the workforce. How does the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs impact gender equity in the workplace, and how are employers responding in your experience? Yeah, it's a fascinating discussion to have, you know, at a time when we have been focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion in our workplaces generally. Dobbs has just been thrust into the forefront as yet another point for discussion. There are a number of websites out there collecting information about how Dobbs may well impact our workplace and things that are occurring already. One to take a look at is Don't Band Equality, that a number of employers have signed on to their mission statement about ensuring that there's an attempt at maintaining gender equity in our workplaces with a discussion of Dobbs. And the, the website cites to some studies that find that women who don't have access to abortion are actually three times more likely to leave the workforce, that they are likely to experience an increase in poverty, a decrease in employment that will last for years. And ultimately, the studies discuss the fact that the access to reproductive health care, including abortion, is a true workforce and economic issue. Now, couple that with approximately 24 states now that have banned or severely limited access to abortion, and you really do see a cause for employers to think hard about how they are going to think about Dobbs, the impact of Dobbs, and thinking about the everyday in their workplaces. Dobbs impacts currently with these 24 states banning or limiting access to abortion, about 41% of women nationally. And just as a point to really move into how employers are responding, the average travel time or average travel distance for an abortion today is approximately 279 miles, as opposed to the average prior to 
all that we've been seeing with the restricting of abortion to 35 miles. So we're up from approximately 35 miles as the average travel distance to 279 miles. And as we watch the impact, that may increase even more. So among the various corporate responses, we are really seeing companies turn to this concern about maintaining particularly women in their workplace. And and how do they do that with some of these challenges? There's actually a great article today in Bloomberg Law outlining a variety of different things that business is doing to really address this issue for women in their workplace. One of the things that that article talks about is that these travel benefits should really be part of an employer's health plan. And they use the example of Walmart to just give some examples of how Walmart, for example, which I'll note as as we understand, a Southern company is nevertheless addressing issues that are forthcoming from Dobbs. One is expanding travel benefits so that employees and their family members can access covered services that are not otherwise available to them within 100 miles. The other is to add to their self-insured healthcare plans the ability to cover abortion in certain instances. Now, I am absolutely not an ERISA attorney, But every article I'm reading is talking about how one of the ways that may exist that get around some of these state laws is to put these benefits inside a self-insured health plan, because that then makes ERISA the governing statute. So that's just, again, one of the various ways that corporations are looking at this issue. Now, that said, I would say this is not something that any corporations should sort of do in a vacuum and without consulting both their benefits lawyers and their tax lawyers, because there could be some significant tax consequences as well, depending upon how you set this up. Then in addition to all of that, get ready to see how states like Texas and Oklahoma in particular plan to respond. And right now we don't know. So we have a lot to be watching but a lot of corporations in the country who are sort of not sitting back and waiting, but saying we need to address this very important workplace issues so that we can retain and continue to attract talent. And particularly that talent is the talent of women. It'll certainly be interesting to see how the state governments respond to businesses that are taking these actions and particularly then some of the legal arguments that may come out of that. I noted the reference to ERISA then being a governing law and potential there for then preemption arguments, I would imagine. So they're trying to set it up in a way to face this battle of federal versus state, um, which actually ironically gets to the heart of the Dobbs decision in and of itself. That's right. How else do you think that Dobbs might more broadly impact Title VII and claims of employment discrimination? Because we know that Title VII certainly is a federal law that's going to govern most of the employers listening. Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing that's really interesting that becomes yet another thing to watch is that abortion very clearly falls within the umbrella of the protection from pregnancy discrimination. That's not new, right? I mean, that's something that we've known for a very long time and that virtually every circuit, including, for example, the Fifth Circuit, has commented on as recently as 2019 on a decision called Ducharme, where abortion was, again, found to be an aspect of pregnancy and therefore something for which employers cannot discriminate based upon gender. So 
Right now, both the EEOC and several circuit courts, if not all across the country, have taken the position that employers cannot take any adverse action against an individual who is getting an abortion or who's chosen not to get an abortion, that this can't be the basis for an employment decision. Again, so says Title VII, so says the EEOC. We will certainly have to sit back and watch to see how some states intend to maybe attempt to either get around that, alter a state law. But that's one issue that seems to be at the moment settled. Although I will note that there is some language in Dobbs that say that states' regulation of abortion is not a sex-based classification and thus is not subject to heightened scrutiny. So we have to see a little bit about how all this plays out. But I think currently the state of the law is still that abortion is under the umbrella of sex discrimination, and no decisions can be made about an employee because of it. I'll also say, though, that Dobbs then puts us in a different place with respect to other aspects of Title VII. We certainly have seen a number of conversations occur in our workplaces where people are now, to the extent we may not have known, for example, their religious affiliation, or in states that protect political affiliation as a protected characteristic, we might not have known their political affiliations. And then today, as we see these conversations bubble up in our workplaces, we may well see other kinds of discrimination claims come from discussions of Dobbs. People who are either disciplined for a belief or not a belief, depending upon somebody's, i.e. a manager or employer's decision-making relative to that individual. So there's a host of issues within the discrimination realm. So and the last thing I'll note is, in addition to these issues, we will be certainly seeing issues related to the Family Medical Leave Act as employees leave work to maybe have to travel to seek an abortion. And in addition to that, we may well see issues related to that are covered by the National Labor Relations Act as groups of employees engage in concerted activities seeking some sort of coverage for travel or other benefits as a result of the Dobbs decision. So, you know, sort of a a veritable menu, if you will, of potential issues for employment lawyers and human resources professionals. It's such a great point, Jackie. And I think That's something that a lot of businesses would rather stick their head in the sand and ignore Dobbs because it is something that is so politically contested and is such a hot button topic. But for that very reason is why they need to be prepared and on their guard to be able to address some of the implications that will come up in the workplace, including just as you noted, the, the potential that you might end up with harassment or discrimination claims of coworkers. There might be heated discussions of a political nature in the workplace. And so employers really need to be on their guard and make sure that they've brushed up on all of their policies and some of their workplace congeniality rules as they decide how to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Women's Equality Day seems to me a great time to sort of check in on pay equity. We've heard a lot from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission about pay equity We continue to see state laws grow in the area of pay equity. So, Holly, how did 2021 look for pay equity? So, Jackie, as you know, every year, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics will publish data, usually for the prior year. 
And this year, the data reflects that in 2021, the median weekly earnings for women working full-time were approximately 83% of the median weekly earnings for men working full-time. Now, of course, these are based on median weekly earnings. And so there could be, you know, compensation disparities here may be attributed to differences in occupations, skills, experience, and other factors. But one thing that the data does support is that women are still overrepresented in lower paying positions in the workplace, which is contributing to the pay gap. Certainly, we saw that in 2020 with a lot of women leaving the workforce in order to care for children as schools shut down, as a lot of schools transitioned to remote learning, and as daycares then had to shut their doors as well. And so the the numbers are staying fairly steady in that 83% range for at least overall women. We know that the numbers are also an even greater disparity when we look at minority women as well. So what are the federal agencies doing to address these issues? Anything new at this point? So we saw back in 2016, I know that seems like an eon ago now, especially after a pandemic, but we saw back in 2016, the EEOC added pay data to the EEO-1 form. And so that's the form that's submitted by employers every year, usually if they have greater than 100 employees. And so the EEOC collected data for 2017 and 2018 for those reporting employers. And actually, just last month, a study was published that evaluated the methodology and usefulness in collecting that pay data information. And the EEOC has taken the position that the report shows that the data collection is useful in its enforcement efforts, something which may indicate a return to pay data collection efforts by the EEOC going forward, Mm -hmm. that they are taking the position that this is something that can give them some broader guidance, not necessarily to be used in specific individualized enforcement efforts, but give some broader context when they are investigating allegations of pay disparity. In 2021, the EEOC was actually also very active in filing and settling pay discrimination lawsuits. Last year, the EEOC resolved 10 pay discrimination lawsuits for approximately a million dollars on behalf of 51 individuals. So 51 individuals collecting a million dollars through EEOC negotiations. And they also filed five lawsuits alleging compensation discrimination last year. Those are the ones where the EEOC is the one as the plaintiff filing against employers, of course. A lot of times they're systemic in nature if it's going to be on behalf of more than one employee. And of those five, four of them were for pay discrimination based on sex. The EEOC last year also, um, they are touting that they conducted 124 what they're calling outreach sessions, speaking with over 24,000 thousand individuals on issues relating to equal pay. So this is clearly a priority for the EEOC. We're also seeing the Department of Labor and the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs put emphasis on pay equity. So earlier this year, the OFCCP, because that's a lot easier to say than the full name, (laughs) issued directives indicating that the agency will be requesting self-audits from government contractors more frequently. So the regulations that govern covered federal contractors generally require contractors to perform in-depth analyses of their total employment practices to determine whether there are impediments to equal employment which traditionally has included a review of compensation systems. So what the DOL is signaling now is the expectation that federal contractors undergo a formal pay equity audit as part of this evaluation. 
So when the OFCCP originally issued this directive, there were concerns that were raised by federal contractors about the impact of the requirement on privilege, right? Because most businesses that conduct these types of pay equity audits do it through counsel. And so just last week, the OFCCP clarified that they will not be requiring companies to produce privileged communications when reviewing their internal pay audits. And so from multiple fronts now, we're seeing the EEOC and the DOL included in this. The current administration has really brought pay equity into focus over the last year. So are there any other pressures on business to evaluate their compensation practices? Certainly. I mean, even outside of these EEOC and DOL requirements, we are seeing greater pressures from other sources as well. For instance, I know that in advising some clients who are publicly traded, they are seeing greater pressure from their shareholders to conduct pay equity audits and to take corrective measures if necessary. So that's one area where we're seeing greater pressure outside of the federal government. And then we're also seeing some state governments take action. And Jackie, if I'm remembering correctly in our conversations, I believe Massachusetts has a robust pay equity law on its books. Yes, robust is an understatement and one of the most aggressive pay equity laws in the country with limited opportunities to do much more than ensure you're doing a full comprehensive self-audit so that you can defend a claim if you get one. But one, a law that certainly has a lot of teeth in it and had a lot of companies who are in Massachusetts over the course of the last several years really turn their attention to pay equity. So it's certainly something that I think should be on the minds of all employers and businesses and should be something that they are consulting with counsel about. As we know that, you know, we've got Massachusetts being so aggressive, the EEOC, the DOL for covered contractors. So pay equity is certainly something that should be on everyone's mind, not just here on Women's Equality Day. Jackie, as our guest on today's program, I want to give you the final word. Is there any other new developments that you want to address here in the world of women's equality? Yeah, I do. I think it is a really important time for employers to take stock of the various areas of growth that really do bring about equality in our workplaces, the various employment laws that really are targeted on trying to make the workplace a place where women can do their work and thrive, while at the same time dealing with, for example, family obligations related to pregnancy, which, you know, we've made a lot of gains in a variety of ways, but women are still caring children and still the ones who are giving birth. And so uh, we are really seeing an increase in paid family leaves across the country, as you know, Holly. And we are currently at seven states with full active laws, along with the District of Columbia. But in addition to those seven, over the course of the last several months, year or so, we have seen Colorado pass a paid family leave law that is going to go into effect on January 2024, which is, among other reasons for a paid leave, 12 weeks of leave related to, among other, again, pregnancy, childbirth, And that there is an additional four-week protection if the need for leave is related to childbirth or pregnancy-related conditions. So we see Oregon coming up right behind it. Actually, I have my years reversed. Oregon is January 23, that payroll deductions begin to support that paid leave law with the leave starting similarly 12 weeks in September of 2023. And then right behind that, 
Maryland, January 2025, and Delaware, January 2026. So we're seeing this real growth in paid leave laws. And the feature of these paid leave laws that differ than, for example, the FMLA is this is paid time off with job protection. So a little bit different than the FMLA, given that it's paid time off, again, usually collected through some sort of payroll deduction, often with an employer contribution as well, though sometimes not. And also different than those family and or disability supplements that we saw previously, for example, like in California or New Jersey or Rhode Island that provide for some sort of paid benefit, but don't have the job protection piece. So now California, of course, has plenty of other leave laws that provide for job protection. But really what we're seeing is these laws coming forward and putting it all under one umbrella, job protected leave for a period of time with pay that goes along with it for, again, a number of reasons that mirror the FMLA, including pregnancy and childbirth. And then, of course, we can't leave a discussion of the various laws that are allowing women to hopefully thrive in the work environment. We can't leave without talking about the continued growth of Me Too legislation. And, you know, in the course of the last few months, we've even seen a new Chicago ordinance that is requiring employers in Chicago to provide not only policymaking, but required training for employees in Chicago, as long as supervisors and managers. And that training is two hours long for supervisors and managers, plus an hour of bystander training, and for employees, an hour long, plus an hour of bystander training. So. And then, of course, even earlier this year, we saw an amendment to the Federal Arbitration Act with the end of forced arbitration and sexual harassment claims. So there is growth. You know, we can sort of we started on a note where Dobbs is a challenge to women's equality in our work environments. At least that's certainly what a lot of the statistics say. And hopefully ending on a note where we're seeing growth and development and a lot of corporations who are trying to mitigate the effects of jobs in the workplace. Well, this has been a very interesting and timely discussion, particularly as we recognize Women's Equality Day. Thank you so much for your time, Jackie, and for joining me here today. Thanks for having me. It was fun to have the conversation with you. Absolutely. If you would like to connect with Jackie, please click on her bio in the description of this podcast. We encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. We invite you to search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Holly Goodman, and thanks for listening.